Curse. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, Episode 3. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, by Metallica fans, for Metallica fans. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest today is Blasco, bassist for Ozzy Osbourne, longtime bassist prior to that for Rob Zombie, and a member of seminal crossover thrash hardcore punk band, Cryptic Slaughter from back in the day. Blasco is also an accomplished artist manager whose clients include Black Veil Brides and singer Andy Beersack's solo project, Andy Black, as well as Zach Wild. And he's one third of Zach's Black Sabbath tribute band, Zach Sabbath. And to top it all off, most importantly, he's a dear friend, a very good friend, colleague, somebody I've known here in California for about 15 years. I think you'll enjoy listening to this conversation. As Blasco tells me tales of seeing Metallica opening for Armored Saint around the time of Ride the Lightning, seeing Slayer multiple times as a local band in Los Angeles, you know, playing first to four small clubs like the Roxy, being right there at the forefront of the whole crossover movement in the 80s, and of course, lots and lots of Metallica including a partial defense for me of the Metallica of the 90s. And I say partial defense, not because I'm half-hearted about it, but because I could go on about it for hours and hours and hours. But fear not, that's just a small component of what was otherwise a wide-ranging conversation. It was very candid and a lot of fun. And if you're unfamiliar with Blasco, I think you'll hear some great indications of why he's one of my favorite people. Before we jump into that interview with Blasco, I just want to remind you that we are giving away a deluxe edition collector's box set of the remastered, reissued Kill 'em All album. Yes, the debut album from Metallica and that giant collector's box with that super cool, thick, hardcover book, a whole bunch of vinyl, CDs. I think there's a patch in there. <laughs> Um, that book has tons of never before seen photos and there's a plethora of live shows, radio IDs, interviews. I'm giving away this box set courtesy of my friends at Warner Music, the distributors for Metallica's record label, Blackened Recordings. All you have to do to be eligible to win this thing, which retails for around 150 bucks, is go on iTunes, which you can also access through your podcast app if you are listening to Speak and Destroy on your iPhone just go into the search function in the podcast app, look up Speak and Destroy on the store, and write a review of Speak and Destroy. You don't have to be William Shakespeare. I'm not looking for the bard. It can be one sentence if they'll let you get away with that on there. Write whatever you want. I may have a team of judges help me pick the best review. We may even just pick a review at random, but someone who reviews Speak and Destroy podcast on iTunes is going to win this Kill em All box set from us. Why am I punishing you about reviews? Well... The more reviews and star ratings there are, the higher the visibility for the podcast, which means the more Metallica fans and like-minded, passionate people will discover this thing and tune in and listen to it. As soon as we hit 100 reviews on iTunes, I'm going to pick someone who wrote one of those reviews and send he or she the Kill em All box set. So with that bit of business out of the way, here is my conversation with Blasco. <laughs> Thank you. 
This will also be fun for me because I'm going to learn things about you that I don't actually know. <laughs> you, you think, but you probably <laughs> already do. Yeah. Your mom or dad or anybody musical in the family? Was there somebody who was kind of setting you on that path or was that a, a total no. self-discovery? No, there was, there was actually like, n there's no one musical in, in any blood related field, you know, like it, like nowhere in my family bloodline is there a musician <laughs> that, I'm, <laughs> that I'm aware of. What kind of got you started? What were the first things that you connected with? Oh, easy answer. Kiss Destroyer. That was it. You know what I mean? Because it was like I was very young and my parents listened to bullshit like Peter, Paul and Mary and and, you know, Joan Baez and John Denver. Like that was the kind of shit that was in our house. You know what I mean? Whenever I saw Kiss, you know, these guys are superheroes. It's like they're you know, like especially the, you know, the cover of Kiss Destroyer. It's like it's a comic book. Obviously spending a lot of time talking with Andy about his life, I would imagine that Kiss connection was some some sort of early connection between the two of you. Yeah, I mean, very much so. I Him and I connect musically, too, and keep in mind that we're, like, you know, over 20 years apart. But, uh, you know, the fact that I throw out stuff and he's like, oh, yeah, man, I'm totally into them, too. And I was like, wow, really? So, yeah, him and I, we, the thing that he's really into that I never got hip to was Alkaline Trio. But other than that, we're pretty well connected musically. Yeah, and I, one of the things he and I have discussed that's great about KISS is how many different eras, uh, you know, there's so many opportunities to explore all these different parts of KISS. Like you can be a fan of this era or that era, or, you know, for me growing up, the KISS that was on MTV was, you know, I, I caught, I guess, the tail end of Creatures of the Night because I remember seeing the I Love It Loud video and that was Makeup KISS. And my older brother and cousins were into Makeup Kiss. But the kiss that was really around for me as a kid was more that sort of lick it up, animalize era. And then like for somebody like Andy, you know, it was like revenge kiss was a big thing for him. And I think it's one of the things that's great about the band is that there's so many different. It is like a comic book also in the sense that you can. Everybody has their favorite Avenger, and sometimes it might be like an obscure Avenger, and it's like, you know, I'm I'm sort of obsessed with Vinnie Vincent as the Ankh warrior in that era. You know, it's like <laughs> just the the random sort of obscurities that are there to dig into. It makes it fun. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was into the classic 70s era, but I was so young that, first of all, I didn't even understand that you could go see them live. And by the time that I figured that out and was old enough and had a cousin that would chaperone me to a show, it was the Universal Amphitheater and it was Creatures of the Night Tour and Motley Crue on Too Fast for Love was the opener. And Amazing. Um, yeah. And but in hindsight, it, you know. Like to me, it was the greatest moment of my life, right? And I and I, and like they had the tank on stage or whatever. And I don't so much know that I processed that there was two different guys on stage, right? Y you know, like it kind of didn't matter. 
like as they played the songs and I think we had relatively pretty decent tickets and stuff. But then to to find out, you know, that Andy kind of clued me in on, he's like, oh, oh man, like they were they were eating shit. You know, they weren't even doing arenas and stuff. And like to me as a kid, like I didn't even acknowledge the fact that it was the Universal Amphitheater, which, you know, which held like 6,000 people. Like it that they weren't an arena band didn't mean anything to me because I was seeing that band for the first time. I didn't even know what an arena was. You know, <laughs> right. You know, what I mean? <laughs> right. You know? They, there was a tank on stage, they were in makeup, and they played all the hits, you know? So that was all that mattered to me. But man, that that was, you know, once again, that's that's where it all, that's where it all started. And I haven't looked back since. Yeah, I remember that video had the tank in it on stage with, you know, yep. Eric, Eric Carr, rest in peace, the Fox sitting up there playing. And I remember as a kid seeing that on TV and being like, legitimately scared of it but scared in the way that i was scared of uh you know our local horror host sammy terry and you know dracula and frankenstein and stuff where it's like i'm scared of this but it's cool yeah totally man i mean it was like i said man it was like i had nothing to compare it to to me at that moment that was the coolest thing that i could possibly be involved with so where did that lead you you know everybody has sort of those those gateway records, you know, for me, I was, I was lucky to have an older brother who hit me to everything from Adam and the ants. To the sex pistols. It's a generation act. To Hanoi Rocks. Considering that we were kids growing up in a lower income part of Indiana, <laughs> you know, the fact that my brother was clued into so many things that were awesome was, you know, in hindsight was a huge blessing for me. And, you know, I got really into a lot of that stuff early, but the first thing that really became my own journey from underneath that shadow in a sense was when a friend gave me a copy of Peace Cells on cassette. My entryway, like I went directly from The Cure the Sex Pistols, the Misfits, I went directly from that stuff right into thrash metal. And I sort of skipped, at the time, classic rock and heavy metal and new wave of British heavy metal and, and basically all these things that really informed the thrash movement. You know, anything that had any kind of spandex or teased hair, I was just like, no way. Like, you know, I'm full <laughs> on thrasher dude, the team and the club and the gang. And I like these bands and I hate everything else. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kiss is where it started. And then, uh, from there it just led into classic metal, I guess, you know, whereas that led to the path of like ACDC and Judas priest. And iron maiden. the best. 
you know, and, and then I think there was like a Motley crew and, you know, you know I mean, cause it's like, you got to figure, man, at that point there, you know, there was no internet or anything. You kind of just had to find, and I was an only child, right? So I didn't have the older brother, but there was a buddy's older brother that did help expand my horizons, but I'll get to that later. But you, you kind of find things on your own, you know, or, or maybe some guy at school or whatever. I remember some kid at school mentioned Motley Crue for the first time and whatever. But, you know, there was it was few and far between what you were able to find. And you know what I mean? Going through like a record store, you only had an allowance, which wasn't much. And yeah, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was music discovery was, uh, was very tricky, um, at that point. Yeah. But all that stuff then led to, you know, more and more metal, more aggressive. And then I remember getting metal massacre one, when it wow. first came, when it first came out, so obviously that was the gateway to then other things, you know, that were like Metallica, right? That was like the first track on there, yeah, and stuff. But I lived in L.A., so Slayer was a local band, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know. It's like so. So the first time I saw Slayer, they were playing the Roxy, and they were first of four, and I distinctly remember this. So it was Slayer opening. And then it was Savage Grace, then Bitch. Betsy Bitch, remember that? And, <laughs> yep. and, and, and then the headliner was this band called Pandemonium, who I think was also on Metal Massacre 1. I got to go back and, and look. But but all those bands were on a Metal Massacre or on Metal Blade or, you know, at, 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 at some point. Yeah. And, and stuff. And, and um, yeah, I remember, like, me and my buddy, like, snuck out of the house and took the bus up to the Roxy to go to the show. And, and, and um, but my point is that Slayer was a local band. So yeah. you could see them play the Roxy. You, and then, the, and then the, as they started to come up, you know, they would play the country club. And, and so I saw Slayer a lot as, as a kid. Wow. And, that, and that obviously, you know, led into other stuff. Whereas Metallica wasn't, you know, they, they were up in the Bay Area at the time. And, and so the, the, the first time that I was able to catch them, they were on Ride the Lightning Cliff was still in the band, obviously, and they were opening for Armored Saint. Yeah, I remember that tour, and I remember, man, I, I just like barely missed that. <laughs> Yeah, because I because I I I I was aware of it enough to know the handful of metal dudes that I knew in Indianapolis uh, to know people who had seen this like legendary Armored Saint Metallica show at the Sherwood Theater, and I have a friend who actually years later I ended up playing in like my main band with. He was the guitar player, but he has this great story about hanging out with Cliff Burton after that show and smoking weed with him, and. <laughs> The, the part that's genius about the story, and if you know this guy, John Zepps, who's this amazing, crazy character in Indianapolis and this insane guitar player, it makes the story even funnier. But the story goes that him and his buddy smoked out with Cliff and Cliff nodded off 
So they're sitting there with Cliff Burton, who's asleep, and they're like, you know, they're teenagers, and they're like, what do we do? Like, this dude from Metallica is like asleep. And they were like, um, <laughs> we should smell him. <laughs> so <laughs> they leaned in and smelled Cliff Burton. And when, and, okay. and when he tells you the story and you're like, what did Cliff Burton smell like? The answer is a damp basement. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> so, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So at that point, you know, like the only thing I'm in into is like Metallica and Slayer and Venom and Exciter and the rods, Jag Panzer, and like you know, what I mean, like that's that's the only shit that I'm I'm interested in. I mean, aside from the classics, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, you know, what I mean, yeah. those guys were those guys would roll through town, and and I'm there, Long Beach Arena, Iron Maiden, Scream for Me, Long Beach, I was there. I'm on Amazing. that record. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I think I, heard, I think I recognized your voice. I think I heard you there. <laughs> yeah, you can hear me in there. <laughs> um, that that's that's my world. And then, so in ninth grade, I befriend this guy who has the older brother, right? And and I remember going over to my buddy's house, and and I'm playing like uh, Exodus, Bonded by Blood, or whatever, and we're just jamming out, getting high, or whatever. And he's like, man, if you like this fast, aggressive stuff, you should check this out. And he puts on Dead Kennedys and God We Trust Incorporated. California, Alice, California, The, the the older brother guy was the guy that threw my buddy Mark like he's and keep in mind that their dad is a preacher. So these guys are <laughs> fucking like aggro dudes. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like and and he and the older brother guy was the SST guy. He was the guy that would sneak out of the house and go see Black Flag play somewhere, you know, d- downtown or whatever. And it'd be like the Minutemen, Husker Du, Black Flag, you know, like just gone, like just SST shows, like fire hose. Like he was the one that turned me on to all that stuff. So that expanded my, you know, field of vision into, oh, wow, there's all this aggressive music out there. Like I said, it expanded my field of vision so that when cryptic slaughter comes around you know a year later i'm connecting with all these dudes that are into slayer as well as dead kennedys as well as i was just about to say this this dude is like planting the seeds of crossover without even realizing it when he's exposing you to this stuff exactly so 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 that's when the perfect storm of punk rock and and thrash metal 
combine to make crossover. And then there's this whole, you know, my whole next phase of my life that is cryptic slaughter on metal blade records with DRI, with COC, with raw power, with, um, the mentors, you know what I mean? It was just this whole then next wave of, 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 you know, the page in my book of high school of that is all that shit, you know? Was there an awareness, you know, you always wonder as a kind of student and historian of different movements and music and subgenres and, and that sort of thing. I mean, certainly, you know, like you said, we didn't have the internet. So for me, I had magazines to help point the way, um, which were even kind of hard. You know, you either bought expensive import magazines from Europe or there were the occasional like cream presents thrash metal magazine you know these little specials that would it's kind of like watching headbangers ball i used to videotape three hours of headbangers ball for the four thrash videos they would show you know yep. if i just fast forwarding through it the next morning but you know and sometimes you would buy records crossing your fingers and hoping you didn't just waste your lunch money you know i remember i bought you know, the tragic serenades ep i bought the celtic frost tragic serenades ep purely based on the cover art and was like this looks like something i would like and thankfully it was i you know because of magazines and kind of and meeting other people who were into this music you kind of started to learn about subgenres and this and that it's funny when you brought up the kiss destroyer cover my mind immediately goes to the sloppy seconds destroyed cover which sloppy seconds were like the local punk legends they were on tang records they had uh this record called destroyed that was the four dudes from sloppy seconds you know, recreating the Destroyer album cover. The drummer for Sloppy Seconds, Steve Sloppy, worked at the record store closest to me. And he was somebody who would, you know, you could you could go in as a young thrash kid, you know, punk kid, hardcore kid, and ask him questions about records to buy and stuff like that. Where I'm going with this is, do, do, did you have an awareness? Because I certainly was like, you know, DRI, COC, Crumb Suckers, Ludacrist, you know, there were different bands that, to me, were forming this crossover movement. I think the Chromags, as much as they're like a quintessential hardcore band, I think even certainly by Best Wishes was part of that. Was there an awareness when you're in Cryptic Slaughter that you're part of this burgeoning movement and community that's kind of developing its own thing within a thing? Surprisingly, yeah. I mean, whenever I look in, in hindsight, there was unique things that made cryptic slaughter successful quote unquote right i mean we weren't a successful band in that we didn't make any money but in hindsight now whenever i whenever i look at it like to me like those albums are like unlistenable right and like we weren't we weren't very we weren't very talented in musicians keep in mind though we were like super young too and and we didn't we didn't sit down and go let's be let's play the fastest that we can play to set ourselves apart. We, we did, it was kind of just like, it just sort of happened. And and I don't know where I'm going with it, but like there was a lot of bands that I thought that were more talented than us that became not as successful down the line. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I can't really explain that so much other than it was like, we just had a thing and, 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 we did know that we were part of, of of something, you know. That crossover thing was very was very visible, and uh, but you know, fortunately for us, it's like we we had a pretty good career in that we put out three records in the course of about three four years, but we all lived at home because we were all in high school, you know. So <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah. so, so we didn't, the band was strictly for fun and making money or anything was, was not part of the agenda. Um, which in hindsight now is, you know, in the course of what my career is now and how that all works and, and working with young and up and coming bands or whatever, right? Like it's, that's not even, it doesn't even make sense. But you know what I mean? Like we were a garage band that had a record deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was, it's in hindsight, that's the part that's weird uh, about it. But we knew that we were part of something. Part of what makes a band like Cryptic Slaughter successful you know within that scene versus some other bands who may have had more musicianship or skill in that sense or more polished recordings or whatever i think it's vibe you know i think there was an energy that was captured in those recordings an attitude a scrappiness and then you package that literally and figuratively with that artwork and even the band name and the lyrics and and you get something that you know, for me, a kid all the way in Indiana who's discovering bands like Cryptic Slaughter through this little network, you know, it had a mystique to it. You know, I'm like, I, as far as I knew, you guys like lived in a garbage can, you know, and we're like, yeah, out like smashing the state every night. Like, you know, yeah. I, I, I didn't think of it as like kids in high school like me, you know. Yeah. I, and, 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 and that's it, too, man. I mean, it was like we didn't think about it. We just we just did it. And. Uh, you know, that's, that's the thing that I, you know, I tell y y younger bands or like people ask for advice, you know, coming up or whatever. And I was like, man, like you just got to go and do it. Don't overthink it, you know? And, but when there was, there was a conscious effort though, to not be everybody else. Like, you know what I mean? Like we didn't, yeah. we weren't trying to, we weren't trying to be Metallica and we weren't trying to be Slayer. We know that those bands were the you know the king shit of fuck mountain at that time and um and we weren't trying to we weren't trying to be that you know we 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 were we were I mean we were a metal band in in some capacity but you know the lyrical content was sort of more political and social socially based tonality wise of what we were doing I, I think it was rooted in metal but it it didn't sound metal and it didn't really sound punk rock it was kind of somewhere in between hence the crossover you tag. But we also didn't fall into we didn't second guess ourselves in like all, oh, well, we're a crossover band, so it has to sound like this. We, we didn't do that either. And we just we just did what we did. And we knew that shit had to be fast. Right. And we knew that shit had to be aggressive. I mean, we we definitely. But that was us, though. We were angsty 16 year old kids. So that was just the music that we were going to make no matter what, you know. Once upon a time, I was interviewing Vili Valo from him, and he was like, you know, look, man, him is just typo negative plus U2. You know, and I've, I've seen Chris Martin say that Coldplay is just U2 plus Radiohead or, you know, and Metallica in a lot of ways is, you know, you take Diamond Head, you take Motorhead, a little Merciful Fate, you have Metallica. But what makes a band unique when they're good and they're not just imitators is when they can take some things that haven't necessarily been combined before 
and then put it through their own prism, like through their own life experience and put their own stamp on it. And I think that's how you end up with a band like Cryptic Slaughter or a band like Metallica, that while you can reverse engineer and, and figure out the ingredients that went into the recipe, it still tastes like something different. Yeah, totally agreed. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, we, we didn't have, we didn't have aspirations to be huge rock stars. We knew what we were doing had an expiration date on it. And, and it did. I mean, literally the, the, the day that we got home, like we graduated high school, went on tour for the last time, came home from that tour and was like, yep, it's over. See you guys later. And we, (laughs) we, we all very mutually went our own separate ways to do our own thing. And granted we're, you know, we're all friendly. You know, I, I, I still talk to those guys all the time and, and, and it's a, and it's a friendly situation, but it was like, but that was the end of it. We, we, we knew that we didn't, we weren't pursuing that kind of a career, um, in music. We knew that it was for fun and it, it had a limited shelf life. Um, you know, we weren't trying to, we weren't trying to be something that, it, that it wasn't, you know what I mean? We, we knew, we knew what it was. To quote Cliff Burton, you weren't trying to be something big and fancy. Yeah, we're not trying to be something big and fancy, you know. It's just us doing what we do. No, man. <laughs> you know, not at all. And and the bands that were big and fancy, I mean, you, you know, they weren't really. I mean, because it's like I, re- I remember the distinct moment that we were in this in the studio. And I might I might have my my dates all fucked up, but I'm pretty sure I'm 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 right right around that that Master of Puppets and Rain and Blood came out right around the same time. And if you look back at it, and we were living, you know, we were living living it then, right? So we, we were experiencing this shit in real time. Yeah. And it was like, these guys are innovating the, the next wave because you look at those records, the, as far as I'm concerned, those were the kings as, you know, the big four. They're, they're number one and number two. But if you look at those records coming out at the same time, granted, lyrically, those bands are drastically different. But yeah. if you look at those records, Metallica was going prog, man. Like Master of Puppets was like epic, right? Mm-hmm. And whereas the length of Rain and Blood was pretty much the length <laughs> of Master of Puppets, the song. Yeah, <laughs> you the, know? the entire album fits on one side of a cassette. <laughs> right, you know, and and so those guys were paving the way in two completely different paths to where you just go like, wow, it, it, you know, and and it was like, the, the you know, the, the rest of this is up to your interpretation of, of how this is going to go. But I just remember, I just remember just feeling like, you know, the, the, like the skies had opened wide and you're yeah. just like, wow, man, like this can go anywhere at this moment. You know, I guess it was just the point of experiencing heavy metal music at a time when you had two bands that were paving the way in two different directions and just opening up the landscape for, you know, all that was to follow to interpret that and take it their own directions. Right. Whereas now I feel that that field of vision has narrowed so much to yes. where you're 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 not getting much innovation in metal music anymore. In 1986, I mean, this just came up literally in the last interview I did for Speak and Destroy. And I have a feeling it's probably going to come up every episode because it's such a quintessential year for this music. 
not only do you have Master of Puppets and Rain and Blood, you also have Peace Sells But Who's Buying. You have, uh, I believe, the first Candlemas record, Epicus Dumicus Metallicus, which is another whole direction of music in, yep. within metal. You have Dark Angel, Darkness Descends, uh, Destruction, Eternal Devastation. You know, I think there was a Voivod record that year. And with a lot of these bands, kind of like we were talking about with Cryptic Slaughter, where you said within the scene there were bands you thought were maybe more talented or had this or that that you didn't, and yet your band sort of rose above theirs. There's something to be said for the fact that, you know, there's a lot of destruction and certainly a lot of darkness descends that you can listen to and draw some parallels to some of these bigger bands we're talking about. But for these variety of different reasons and the stars aligning in whatever way that they did, certain bands just excelled beyond the pack. You know, it, it could be something as simple in some cases as, you know, Metallica got that. I want to say it was 86, right? Where they got that tour with Ozzy Osbourne. It was huge for them, you know, like just taking this whole as ambassadors for this whole movement of music going out there and putting it in front of the Aussie crowd. I mean, it's just, you know, massive. And it's great for all the bands, the big wave lifting all the, all the boats. Totally. And you, and you know what else too, I'm thinking of around the same time was Venom uh, at war with Satan. one whole side of the record was the one song, you know, and, (laughs) and, and, and granted in my mind at the time, it was just so genius. And now that I listen back to it, I go, Oh wow. Like this, you know, this doesn't really hold up to the test of time, but, 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 but so, but so cool. But I'm saying that there was so much innovation going on in the genre around that time. And without any concern for, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm sure members of these bands could correct us if we're wrong, but I don't imagine anyone in Dark Angel was sitting around going, oh, darkness descends. This is, uh, you know, this is going to put us up there with Motley Crue. <laughs> you know, there wasn't no. any sort of aspirations in that sense. It was it was really pure in so much as people were making what they wanted to make and the records that they thought were kind of missing. And yeah, and, and to your point about the innovation, when I look back, I can see that I was on my career, not only as wanting to play in bands, but moreover, as a journalist, I remember because I read all the metal magazines and I was always sort of the oracle to the other metal kids at my lunch table because I was following all that stuff. I remember telling everybody before South of Heaven came out, yeah, this new Slayer album is going to open with a slow song. And everybody's like, what? No way. And I'm like, yeah, man. Like I was reading these interviews with Carrie and Jeff and they're saying like rain and blood's like the pinnacle of speed metal. And where do you go from there? And they want to just fuck with everybody and turn it all on its head and just start their new album with a slow song.
people are like, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, and then it comes out. And it's funny also because there was no like secrecy, like with the internet now where you're trying to keep a lid on things and follow this like marketing rollout and all the ways we've had to adapt. You know, back then you were dying to get any bit of information out. So, you know, whatever writer sat down with Kerry King in 1986 or 1987, he was happy to say like, yeah, a record that's not even recorded yet is going to start out this way. Yeah. I mean, to, to, to back up to just uh, in terms of me getting here, Kiss was what opened the door, but Kill Em All and Show No Mercy is what made me want to be in a band, right? Because Kiss Destroyer, I didn't even, I didn't even know what that was. Like, I didn't even know, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't even know, I didn't even understand that they played instruments. I just thought that they were like aliens. Yeah. Um, and but you, you, like, didn't, you didn't see it as something accessible and tangible that you could do and insert yourself into. Correct. And so my analogy is it's like in skateboarding, right? Because skateboarding was a big thing for us in, in the 80s because it was like the Bones Brigade era, right? But it was it was the equivalent of like all the guys that skated like pools and ramps and all this stuff. We didn't have that shit, right? And so those guys were aliens like Kiss was. But then here comes Lance Mountain. And Lance Mountain in the Bones Brigade videos, he's the one that brings in street skating, right? And you go like, fuck, man, like, I could do that. Like, I could, you know, I could, I could, I get, there's curbs outside, you know, there's, there's mailboxes outside. There's, there's, there's railings outside. And he's the one that brought, and so for, for us, it was like the, the equivalent was like Metallica and Slayer. They kind of made it to where it's like, it wasn't Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. It was like, they brought it down to earth where you go, oh man, like, this is cool. Like we, we could do this. We, yeah. you know, we, we have long hair and fucking high tops too. Like we can, like <laughs> we can, we can do this shit or whatever. That's what made me start my first garage bands and, and wanting to do all that stuff, you know, and that's, and that's where it led. And so by the time that, that rain and blood and, and master of pups were coming out, that's whenever we were doing the first, uh, cryptic slaughter record. Or, or right around there or something. I mean, like I said, I think I got my dates all fucked up. But right, but the point of it is, is those are what brought it brought it down to make me want to be in a band was, you know, that kill them all and show no mercy. Yeah, and I would, I would say for me, I would draw a similar parallel to fanzines. The first couple of times I encountered a fanzine, you know, it never occurred to me at the time that I could write for metal forces or Kerrang or something, you know, but when I saw like local fanzines and, and zines from all around the country and eventually all around the world that were black and white photocopied somewhere stapled together, that became that much more real to me where I was like, well, I could, I could make one of these. And one of my best friends, his dad happened to work for Xerox, like the company Xerox. So we mm. could go, on weekends and make stickers for our bands on the copy machines. And, you know, I don't, I don't think Kinko's even existed yet. And, you know, we were able to make fanzines for nothing and, you know, give them to our friends and sell them at shows. And yeah, once you realize that it's tangible and I think people don't necessarily understand that didn't live through it, how important that was with the thrash movement. Like you said, that these guys had, high top sneakers and long hair and denim vests. And they looked like the audience, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't this theatricality where you had to get in this elaborate costume or have this big stage production or, 
you know, the last thing that I thought about back then was pyro or, you know, I, the first concert that I went to on my own steam that a parent didn't take me to was Dio and Megadeth. It was the tour was Dio, Megadeth and Sabotage. Sabotage for some reason canceled the, the date in Indianapolis, but I wasn't, I'm embarrassed to say this now, but I, I wasn't hip to Dio yet. To me, Dio was something from older generations that was too like corny and Dungeons and Dragons. And I was, you know, full on thrasher. I went just to see Megadeth. And I remember when Dio played and there were like lasers and stuff like that. I was, I wasn't into it, you know, right. it's just like, dude, Megadeth just came out with nothing but fierce, pissed off, aggressive, technical, majestic songs and just like <laughs> lit the room on fire and now here's this like dude coming out like you know with swords and stuff of course years later i i love ronnie james dio i share initials and a middle name with him um and you know and, and dio sabbath is actually i know this is a bit blasphemy especially considering who i'm talking to right now but i love dio sabbath as much as ozzy sabbath and in some ways more but with all that being said getting back to your point of the accessibility, you know, there, there's, you can't overstate the importance of how cool it was to be able to look at these bands and go like, wait, I could, I could do that. Like I, yeah, I don't think I could be an Iron Maiden. That never occurred to me, but I could, I could be a Metallica. Like, yeah, cool. Right. Right. Exactly. And in, even to the point uh, of that, when Cliff passed away, may he rest in peace. Mm -hmm. The first call that Lars made was to Metal Blade Records. Uh -huh. And, you know, because they were, you know, they and they, they called Metal Blade, I think he called William Howell. And he goes, hey, you know, we're looking to replace our guy. Do you have any suggestions? So he suggested the obvious guy mm -hmm. that got the gig, Newstead. Who, who was in a band on Metal Blade at the time. Exactly. And then he suggested, I mean, I'm sure he suggested a bunch of other people, but he suggested me as well. And he called me up and he goes, Hey man, Metallica's looking to replace Cliff. Is that something that you would be interested in? And I said, yes, of course it would be. But I go, but they're probably looking for a long hair guy. Right. And he goes, yeah. Um, and I was like, well, I just cut off all my hair now <laughs> because that was the era that, you know, that the crossover was coming in and then the yeah. punk was taking over on the thrash and everyone was kind of cutting their hair or whatever and, uh, and stuff. So I had just cut my hair to be more in line with the, the, the punk influence. So not to say that I would have got the gig, even if I had long hair, cause I don't think my skill level was anywhere close to, uh, what, uh, what Newstead's was. However, the point of it is, is that there was a slight connection there yeah. with Metallica. I told you I'd learned something new about you. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out a life full circle, weird sort of ships passing in the night that, you know, a couple decades later, you would find yourself replacing Jason Newstead in Ozzy's band. Yeah, that's funny how that all works. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty amazing. <laughs> I was trying to think before we started speaking today where we first met. And I think because we've known each other now for about 15 years, which is pretty awesome. I think that the first time we met was at everyone knows them as Steel Panther now, of course. But back when they were still Metal Shop, I think we met at a Metal Shop show at the Viper Room. If I'm not mistaken. Wow. Really? Uh, yeah. And I think we were introduced by Jim Rota of Fireball Ministry. 
Makes sense. Yeah. And I was, because uh, back then, I mean, you know, they used to play at the Viper Room every Monday night, and I would go every Monday night. It was perfect for me because, you know, two of my great passions in life are metal music and stand up comedy. And those guys had, had it so <laughs> dialed. And then, of course, the other thing was, you know, I was relatively new to Southern California. I think, I think you and I probably met in 2002. I moved here in 2001. It was, amazing and this kind of goes back to what you were saying about being in LA versus being in a lot of other places where like Slayer was a local band for you it was amazing to me to be able to go to the tiny ass Viper Room you know that had this association with River Phoenix and Johnny Depp and then to see this band playing all these classic songs and making it so much fun and then on any given night going like oh um Gary Sharon and Michael Anthony are on stage doing Van Halen songs with them you know, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, there's uh, Scott Weiland sitting in a booth over there. There's, uh, you know, Gene Simmons is here. Uh, you know, Duff McKagan's playing. Uh, it's so easy. It's amazing. Like the to have that to be a kid from Indiana who grew up reading about all these people and seeing them from a distance, and even having gotten far enough along in my journalism career that I'd met a lot of my heroes and done some cool interviews or whatever. There's still just something so special about being in a room like that, and you know seeing people get up and play these songs just for the love of it in front of, I don't know, what's that, what's that place hold like 150 people? Yeah. 200 or whatever. Yeah. I, re I remember then whenever they graduated and they were doing the residency thing and they were doing, they were doing like LA, San Diego, Vegas, like every week, you know, um, I remember doing an Aussie gig in Vegas and then because they didn't, they didn't go on till like it's Vegas. Right. So they didn't go on till like midnight. And I remember doing an Aussie gig and then I remember going over to the to the uh, the House of Blues to see them play, and then I got up and played Ozzy songs with them. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. the, same, the same night. <laughs> yeah, and I want to you know talking about Ozzy, I, I wanted to. There's so many different eras of your career that we could talk about that are super interesting, which is why I'm going to have you on more than once. You just committed to that uh, psychically. You didn't know that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one thing that I think is really interesting and is a nice sort of microcosm of some of the struggles working in the music business, even at, a, at the higher level, you know? So you had this gig with Rob Zombie, you were the bass player, you were on all the records, you did all the tours, you were, uh, you know, a consistent member in that band. Shortly after you make the decision to, you know, you, you basically you go and obviously you tell this story, but you get the call to audition for Ozzy, you end up getting the gig. And then almost immediately afterwards, if I'm remembering it correctly, Ozzy gets into that infamous uh, ATV accident. And yep. that's like, you know, you've just joined Ozzy Osbourne's band and you've left behind this steady, visible, high profile gig with Zombie. And suddenly it's like, not only is Ozzy not touring, he may never tour again. He might not be able to like stand up on stage. So uh, tell me a little bit about that time and, uh, you know, from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, this guy just got the gig in Ozzy Osbourne. That's amazing. But then on the other hand, I'm sure there was also an element of like, shit, what am I going to do with my life? Like what this, <laughs> this might not even work. Well, it's interesting because 
that's not exactly how it went down. So like I was in Zombie's band, but mm-hmm. then but then he he more or less dissolved the band, or I should say, put the band on hiatus. Oh, that's right, because he was like, I'm gonna go make movies. I might not do he, music for ever. correct. So his his plan was to be you know Francis Ford Coppola or something, and so the band got dissolved at that point. You know, very matter of factly, like this will probably never happen again. And that and that's the end of that, right? So so whenever Zombie was over, I actually was in Helmet at the time oh, that I right. had, that I auditioned for Ozzy and got the Ozzy gig, quit Helmet. Then he got in the accident, and then when he recovered from the accident, he did Sabbath for a couple of years. So <laughs> so and and when he was doing that, that's the time that. Rob put the band back together and then so I was back in zombie for another album cycle or so right that was the educated horses record yes and and then that is whenever Ozzy got back to doing Ozzy stuff and I was so and I was straddling the line like finishing a zombie record and flying with Ozzy to do these like one-offs and stuff. And then eventually, you know, that, uh, that led into replacing myself in zombies band with Matt. And then I went and joined Ozzy's band. And I think I may have, I might be misremembering this, but I I think I saw your last show with zombie. It was like a K rock show. Yes, um, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, what would that be? That would be a weenie roast. Yeah, I remember seeing you guys hug on stage at the end of it and kind of going like, oh, that was a little moment. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that was it. That was yeah. it. And Matt was there and I passed the torch on to him and he's been there ever since. And what a roller coaster too of, you know, what you just described to I me. Mean, it was even more complicated than I remembered it. And I remembered it being a little topsy-turvy for you there. Yeah. What was the helmet lineup then? It was Paige Hamilton, obviously. And then was it... Uh, Chris Trainer was he playing guitar? Chris Trainer, me and uh, John Tempesta. Tempesta. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and we we made a record, and the record is called Size Matters. But I more or less, well, not more or less. I left the band in the midst of making that record, so they retracked all the bass and stuff. I think Chris did it or whatever. That was the record that I would have been on had I, you know not joined Ozzy's band. Was Frank Bellow from Anthrax in Helmet before or after you? After. So after. he kind of he, he kind of <clears throat> stepped into my shoes and then um and then there's been a revolving door ever since. So you had that near miss of sorts, you know, at, le- at least getting sort of uh someone dropped your name for potentially auditioning for Metallica, which in and of itself is amazing. What were, as you were coming up in the ranks and doing different bands, and then which eventually led to the zombie gig, what were some of your encounters along the way with Metallica? I mean, obviously that first show you said was with Armored Saint when they were touring Ride the Lightning. You know, do you remember kind of your, your first encounter with them or, you know, crossing paths? I Well, I remember another show. So I, I saw them... I mean, I distinctly remember them opening for Armored Saint at the Hollywood Palladium and destroying them. And, yes. And Cliff was on base. And I remember James Hetfield at the end of the set did a stage dive into the crowd, you know, 
And, and I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen or whatever. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and then that was it. Obviously armored saints career was, you know, long since over. Uh, and Metallica of course invited John Bush to be their front man. And he was like, no, I'm good. I got this armored saint thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I think and... is why when anthrax came around, he was like, no, I'll take this one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to let this one pass up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in 1988, they were, they had finished and justice for all. And I think I'm pretty sure I got my dates right on this one, but, um, they had finished and justice for all, but it wasn't out yet. Right. And they, or maybe it was just coming out. It doesn't matter. The point of it is, is that they did two unannounced shows at the Troubadour. Yes. And somehow I have a bootleg of one of those shows, by the way. So we've been uh, down here in LA for about three months, uh, doing this shit called a new album, which, uh, should be available, I guess about August 1st, uh, barring all fuck ups and shit. So, uh, we were just wondering if you guys wanted to hear a new one tonight. You guys want to hear a new one, hey! Alright, this one's entitled Harvester of the Saro. They, they were, uh, the name, they, they were, they called themselves Frayed Ends that night. That was mm -hmm. the name of that was what Metallica was calling themselves, Freight Ends from Freight Ends of Sanity, I imagine. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I don't know who opened, but there was an opening band, and I remember the singer was wearing a motorcycle helmet, like an Easy Rider motorcycle helmet with like the stars and stripes on it, uh -huh. and and he was just constantly like banging his head into like shit, like the whole show, like it was fucking insane. Um, but at the time. Because because Injustice for All wasn't out yet, I thought the band was called Frayed Ends. <laughs> but <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter. I never saw or heard from that band ever again, and I have no idea who that was. So anyone listening, if they knew who opened for Metallica at the uh, the Troubadour unannounced shows, uh, please let me know because uh, that would be curious to know. But anyway, somehow I got into one of those shows, and it was fucking amazing to see Metallica at that era play the troubadour i mean the troubadour holds like 400 people or something yes. like it was yeah. it was it was insane god i think maybe the next time is 2008 that it was metallica and ozzy did that one-off Ozfest in dallas or yes i think that's the one where uh king diamond joined them for the merciful fate medley Yes, I believe and, I have. I believe I have a, an official bootleg of that that I bought from the Metallica website. But you know what? I've never met those dudes, other than Robert, of course, mm -hmm. um, and never crossed crossed any paths with them. And maybe that's maybe that's all for the better, right? You know? Yeah, I, I mean, know what look, you mean. They, they, like they were my band, man. Like they like they were the reason that I started that I wanted to be in a band, like. Like I collected every, you know, bootleg that I could and picture disc and their posters were on my walls and like they were my band like confidently all the way through Injustice for All. Like I thought Injustice for All was uh, like an amazing record and the black record I really did like a lot just because the production was insane and, and I thought that they had matured to the point of, uh, you, you know, where, where they got and just their songwriting was there. And I, I just, I just, even though they, 
even though they distanced themselves from the thrash roots, I still thought what they did was they were still innovating to me at that yes. point. Yeah. Like um, we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had to tag out. And then, <laughs> then, then, then it just goes, then it, then I just, I lose, I, they lost me as a fan. Like I, I, I lost the plot after that. Well, I can give you a little bit of my, uh, you know, bearing in mind that I defend aspects of the Star Wars prequels. Master Yoda, Count Dooku, you have interfered with our affairs for the last time. So I get into these contrarian arguments a lot. I, I can give you my perspective on post-Black Album Metallica, specifically Load and Reload. You know, I, I felt the same shock as everyone else when Load came out, and... You know, I wasn't I wasn't bothered that they cut their hair because by that point I had cut my hair and so had everyone else I knew, <laughs> you know, so it was hard to hold that against them. Uh, it, w it wasn't even so much, you know, the makeup and the imagery and uh, the album cover, you know, all the controversial things that have been sort of talked over to death, you know, the Until It Sleeps video, whatever. For me, I had a hard time wrapping my head around how kind of straightforward and mid-tempo some of the songs were. I think in retrospect, if the album didn't open with Ain't My Bitch, I think that I would have loved Load a lot sooner. I eventually mm -hmm. came to love the record. But here, but here's my argument for that. One, I have a playlist that I make for people really cherry-picking the best songs from those two records. I think a lot like Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, if you take Load and Reload, you've got a really fantastic single album there versus a double album that's maybe not as great. The Outlaw Torn... Bleeding Me, those are the, the two songs in particular that I that I send people to. I forgot how much I love that song. I hope you feel the same. It means more and more to me as life goes on. It's crazy. It meant something then, means something different now. Who'd have thunk? Another great one. Keep going. <laughs> but, here's, but here's my argument for that record. So we're talking about innovation. We're talking about, you know, the thing about Metallica that I think has always made them great is that they do what they want and they follow their instincts and they're not really guided by these outside forces or these impulses to go left or go right based on the changing of the tides. And I think people look at that era of Metallica and they go, oh, well, you know, they did Lollapalooza and they wore eyeliner and they were, you know, being trendy. I make the opposite argument. I, I argue that they were being true to who they were in that moment. Because in that moment, you know, they had discovered, you know, they were hanging out with Alice in Chains. They fell in love with that first record and especially the second record, Dirt. And I You know, the original working title for Until It Sleeps was F-O-B-D for Fell on Black Days because the whole arrangement of that song and the vibe of it was very inspired by Soundgarden. Can we get fucking Kirk in here? What? Yeah, get fucking Kirk in here. What's that? Not regular Kirk. Ah. 
Um, and, you know, and they were going back to Thin Lizzy and Led Zeppelin and Sabbath and stuff like that. I think they were just really being true to what they were inspired by and, and what they were feeling at that time and taking that ne- that next natural step from the Black Album even in, into that realm of more stripped down, groove oriented, shorter songs. And I think the imagery that came with that too, I remember he's since gone back on this, but I remember Lars kind of proclaiming once in an interview that he was never going to wear jeans again. And to me, for Lars in the 90s to swear off jeans was just as cool as Lars in the 80s only wearing jeans. You know what I mean? When like everybody else is getting up on stage in these like designer outfits and they're like, we're in jeans with ripped knees and, you know, dirty white sneakers and whatever. In the 90s, I think putting that on would have been just as much of a costume for them. Whereas 90s Metallica were like different people where wearing fancy clothes was was being true to who you know Lars and Kirk especially who they were and what they felt like at that time so I, I don't know this is part of what makes Metallica so fascinating to me is there's so many eras and images and records and, and things like that to discuss and be stoked on and I will say my strongest argument for that period of Metallica is that when you go see them live now you can hear a song like Hardwired or Moth into the Flame that are, you know, long and technical and pissed off and fast. The classic stuff, though, I mean, they, they'll play Battery right now and it sounds amazing. When they play The Memory Remains or, you know, of course, the Black Album stuff, dynamics, man. <laughs> you know, when you get Fight Fire with Fire and Battery and Damage Incorporated in the same set as a Memory Remains type song or King Nothing or even that song they did for the Mission Impossible soundtrack, then you get a sense of like, oh, this band has a catalog and they can have moments in their set. You know, it's not just a bunch of the same thing for two and a half hours, you know? And and that's when I really appreciate those songs the most is in that live setting when it's given you those peaks and valleys and and different moods in a show. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, they, they, like you said, they... The, the cool thing about them is that they always did what they wanted to do. And so me as a fan, you know, I, I, I can't, I have to respect them for that, but that doesn't mean that I have to go along for the ride. Sure. And, you know, and, and, um, you know, I mean, look, regardless of the amount of time and the, and the, the amount of records that they put out that have been, I've been totally disinterested with the fact of the matter is that they're a stadium level band, right? They're U2 status. And at the end of the day, they still do play hard rock and heavy metal, which only opens the doors for the rest of us. You know, they, they, they still are, you know, keeping the torch, the flame lit for for the rest of us, right? And so for that matter, I have to respect them, even though my personal taste may have not grown with them. I still totally respect them for everything that they've done and continue to do for you know the genre itself. You know what I mean? Even though I may not agree with it or understand their perspective, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and 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 try and you know 
complain about it because at the end of the day they don't give a fuck and that's the, and that's the whole point and you know you know for for them is like they're they're like we're metallica man like we we do what we want we don't we don't give a fuck which on one hand it's like it's kind of a bummer to us fans but at the end of the day they wouldn't be where they are if they would have kept putting out master of puppets records yeah and i always argue also that you know master of puppets is still right there for us to listen to you know it's yep. kind of like that uh, this quote gets attributed to different writers and stuff over the years uh alan moore i think is the one i first heard it from but when people would say, oh, they, this movie's so terrible, they ruined your comic book. And Alan Moore's like, dude, my comic book is still right over there. Like, it's not ruined. Just don't <laughs> yeah. see that movie. Just go read the comic again. I will say I wish the Lou Reed record was in a vault somewhere. Because I think had that been something that they'd done for themselves, you know, because certainly that's an opportunity that's hard to pass up when that came along. And it's cool and interesting and weird. And then put it away. And then someday down the road when, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they're not able to tour as much or that's the time to go like, oh, we also have this weird oddity in the vault. One time we made this whole album with Lou Reed based on a like German opera or whatever the hell that was. I think something like that could have been appreciated more by me and certainly every other fan had it come out that way. But to be sort of passed off as any kind of current Metallica release, I think that was just... You know, but hey, but God bless them. I mean, the fact that they're able to do something like that, and I think it sold 30,000 copies or something, and then come back and, you know, put out a couple platinum records again, uh, in this climate especially, you know, it's, it's amazing. They're, they're geniuses in that sense, so. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting, you know, because nowadays, you know, as as managers, right, you and I and, and just our, you know, our uh, – Everyone that we work with, right? Like our our compadres in yeah. in metal or whatever. We all nowadays we all get so caught up in like first week sales and setups and and all this stuff, you know. And in in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of Metallica doing what they want to do, like man, when you look back at like like the first Garage days mm-hmm. of like how kick ass that is. Yeah. But there was no concern about. Oh, I don't know if this is going to do well. Or like it, 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 <laughs> right. it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't about that. It was. It was about putting out a single that, like, had some cool shit on it that sort of revealed their influences. Because yeah. before that, we didn't know or whatever. But it was. It was about. It was about the music, right? Like it was. And, and I'm not trying to sound like an old guy. I guess what I what I'm saying is like I'm just kind of riffing on your point of of that they used to be able to do stuff and it wasn't about what it sold. It was just it was about the music. And as much as I fucking can't stand like that Lou Reed or the symphony record or any of that shit or whatever, like it was them doing what it is that they do, which is strictly about the music. And for that, and for that, I can totally respect it. Yeah. Nowhere in there, even their harshest critic, I don't think anyone would suspect that there was a master plan that was like, oh, this, if we do this Lou Reed album, this is going to be the next big stage in our career that's going to take us to the next level. You know, I don't think there's ever been a thought of the next level for them in any sense other than artistically. And, and yeah, to your point about the Garage Days record, I mean, people don't realize this now because everyone's streaming their music or stealing it. 
But back then, putting the price in the album title was fucking awesome and ballsy. Totally. You know, I mean, they they were literally saying like, hey, independent record stores, big box retailers, chains, you cannot charge more than this price for this thing because we want to make sure that it's dirt cheap and that the spirit of, you know, being in the garage is part of every aspect of this release. So cool. I don't know about you, but I know a guy with a Metallica tattoo that didn't realize until I told him that M.I. Evil wasn't a Metallica song. (laughs) Well, this is going to bring us full circle because I know I've told you this before, but it'll be new to people listening to this. The first time I ever heard Money Talks, the title track from that Cryptic Slaughter record, a local band in Indianapolis was covering it and I didn't know it wasn't their song. (laughs) that's so funny man that people would cover that stuff (laughs) (laughs) well brother thank you so much for taking the time to do this when i decided i wanted to do this metallica centric podcast you were immediately one of the first people i put on my hit list of friends and contemporaries and guys i look up to 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 reach out to and have on this so and i hope to have you on here again sometime to talk about all sorts of other stuff of course, man. Anytime. I love it. Thanks for uh, having me. All right. Thanks, brother. Yep. That does it for this episode of Speak and Destroy. Thank you for listening. And thank you once again to Blasco. To keep up with Blasco's activities with Ozzy Osbourne, with Zach Sabbath, the super cool Sabbath tribute band featuring Blasco and Zach Wilde, who plays guitar, of course, and sings. Follow Blasco on Twitter and Instagram at Blasco, B-L-A-S-K-O 1313. That's Blasco 1313 on social media. I'm Ryan J. Downey. You can follow me at Ryan Downey on Twitter and Superhero HQ on Instagram and follow the show speak and destroy on facebook and instagram speak and destroy underscore on twitter speak and destroy is part of the pop curse podcast network check out all of our other cool podcasts again that's pop curse p-o-p-c-u-r-s-e you can go to popcurse.com or check out pop curse on social media Please remember to rate and review Speak and Destroy in the iTunes store, in your podcast app, anywhere that you're listening to and consuming podcasts. As soon as we hit 100 reviews, we're going to pick one of you fine reviewing people out there and send you the collector's numbered edition deluxe box set remastered reissue of Kill 'Em All. You guys have been great, and I have been Ryan J. Downing. (laughs) 